Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy. LGBT Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver. And Al Warren. Heard on KCP 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. Now I've got the game with me today, Mr. Brian T. There it is. Turns, turn off whatever you want turn, to say. Turn, 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 keeps on turn. Are you still getting people coming after you? Or? In fact, nobody came after me. So even after you made that announcement, not even one person tried to reach out on, on social media. So nobody cares. But it, no, Nobody cared. They were like, nobody, who does this guy think he is? We also have to have listeners for that to happen, too. That's so true. That's I mean, like both listeners, of it, I they say. were both <laughs> off that day. <laughs> <laughs> I only pay people five days a week to listen. <laughs> I, can't, I can't afford this. Well, you know, actually, the guy I got published, you know, I helped that uh, Ed Cleves get his book published. Uh, which one was that? Which, which, which Edward was Cleaves, Kind Soul, Closet Maniac. He was some Boston guy that did. Anyway, I got that book published back in the in, in February, and he um, it's been doing fine. But the thing is, they uh, <laughs> he contacted me today, and I thought of you. He has all these people, uh, you know, hassling him now. He had some guy say that he was outside of his uh, condo building. <laughs> and had a picture of it. And he said, I'm waiting for you and stuff. And he actually had a picture of where where he lives. Oh, that's creepy as hell. It was also <laughs> me doing that to him, but like well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty creepy. And he wanted to know what I what he should do. And I told him contact the game. <laughs> mm, mm. And mine is just forwarded to your email address, so it's automatic. Yeah, it's one big roundabout, <laughs> but that's all right. It keeps people busy while they're waiting. So, <laughs> it's idiot proof. Yeah. Well, nothing's idiot proof now. Come on. <laughs> we had Trump here. So, you know, take that, Tucker. Okay. Well, anyway, on to this. Uh, our our show today, we've, we're going to be talking about Jimmy the King. And uh, no, that's not you, Brian. And um, murder, vice, and the reign of a dirty cop. 
And we've got the author, Mr. Gus Garcia Roberts. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You can address uh, Alan as Alan the Queen. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the, uh, the two listeners you mentioned, I hope that they're <laughs> I hope that they're tuned in right now. Yeah, I'm paying them today. Yeah, okay, I told them it, was, it, was, it was a big one, so we wanted to bump ratings. So they said they could bring a friend too. So. Whoa! You know, I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. That'll be fifty percent more listeners. <laughs> Three. <laughs> oh well. Anyway, uh, you've got quite the history. I, I I take it that you're more of a sports guy by some of your reporting, or am I wrong here? Um. So uh, right now, I'm my day job is I'm as a sports investigative uh, investigative reporter in the sports department for the Washington Post. But previously, before that, I've kind of, uh, you know, I've been in on various I teams or investigative teams um, for major newspapers for about a decade. And L.A. Times, USA Today, and then Newsday, which is in Long Island, New York. I actually did more law enforcement stuff, like a lot of law enforcement misconduct stories and and, you know, stories about sort of how how bad cops get away with it and stuff like that, which led to this book. Um, but the uh, for the last year or so, I've been at the Washington Post focusing on sports, and um, it's kind of a fruitful arena because um, there's, you know, there's a lot of a lot going on below the surface in sports and um, not a ton of people covering it in an investigative manner. Um, so you find you know, there's a lot of stories that are kind of just uh, swirling around um, waiting uh, for somebody to come scoop them up. And, and so it's been it's been a busy year. Why do you think they don't really get anybody following these sort of sports scoops? Is it because they idolize them too much? Um, you know, I think that's that uh, the, that reporters who cover sports uh you know the the majority of them are are beat reporters who often travel with the team um and uh or they cover primarily one league and um so you know i think even with the best reporters in that situation you're going to one you're going to sort of sometimes be numbed to something, you know, and, and I'm thinking of like back in the uh, back in the day of the steroid era in baseball, um, you know, it took a reporter who was not a beat reporter, but who happened to be in a locker room working on another story uh, and and noticed, you know, in in St. Louis Cardinals slugger Mark McGuire's um, locker, some performance enhancing drugs and asked questions about it and wrote about it. And, you you know, I imagine a lot of beat reporters saw it before, but, you know, perhaps there was something some sort of unwritten um, ethic that you don't talk about what you see in a player's locker room, right? So I think that that's sort of an example of, of, of what could be going on. I mean, another thing is just those people that cover sports for a living, uh, are typically extremely busy covering sports, uh, you know, and it's and it's sometimes hard to um, to sort of take the time needed to dig deeper into you know systemic issues, systemic scandals brewing, um, and you know I think there's also something to be said for 
having like a skill set that comes uh, from not having covered sports and, you know, covering the courts and covering the police. And then you sort of, you learn how to navigate the court system. You learn about um, sort of legal stuff and you, uh, you know, and, and, and are sort of able to apply that to, to the, um, the business of sports. And, you know, with newsroom shrinking, there's just not a ton of resources that, that, uh, that, these newspapers have to throw towards investigating sports and, you know, Washington post sports I team, I think is a pretty rare beast at this point. Um, so I think all, all those factors contribute to that. Yeah. Well, you know, if they, if they put me on it, I'd be in the locker room all the time. If, if, if they, <laughs> like looking around. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'd be watching. <laughs> <laughs> But that's a different story. When you get into this about dirty cops and how cops go bad and and all that, do you feel a little bit? Um, do you have to feel a little bit defensive? I wonder because there's right now and in the last few years, there's been so much on policing, yeah. you know, killing people and and all the all the weird stuff going on. But at the same time, there's a pushback from the cop side. So if you're actually out there writing something about a dirty cop and and bad cops, even in reports and stuff, doesn't that kind of do you become kind of a target in a sense? Do you mean like physically? Like, do I feel like uh, yeah? Fear? Do you ever feel a little worried uh, uh, that yeah. you know you're out in the streets and it's like, oh, here's that guy? Yeah, I mean, look, frankly, so so I started reporting this book in earnest in 2017, which was when I left Newsday for the Los Angeles Times. And I, I had sort of thought that this subject um, was, you know, ripe for a book because the the, the main character, James Burke, uh, who becomes this corrupt police chief of one of the largest jurisdictions uh, in the United States and has this really wild saga of his rise and fall, um, that he was like so characteristic of of you know the failures of policing in the United States, and so I just thought it was a great book, but I didn't get going on it until 2017, which was ha- when I happened to move to Los Angeles. And so, l- reporting on this was like a logistical nightmare in some ways because I, you know, I sort of I had to talk to a lot of cops uh, for this book, and and you know, source up cops essentially, um, like dozens of them. And uh, that's tough to do when you're on the other side of the country. Like cops are, I mean, a parallel between sports and, and police is, is, you know, they have these insular cultures where they don't really talk to outsiders. And, and that's sort of like ingrained. So I had to figure out how to do that from, from on the other side of the coast with some visits, of course. But, you know, the, the, uh, I guess the plus side is I felt a little bit more secure uh, because, you know, uh, I, Definitely feel that if I was living in Long Island while reporting this book, I would have been afraid of being pulled over, you know, on a false pretense uh, and arrested or or worse. Uh, and and I think that would have been a legitimate fear out here in Los Angeles. Um, I didn't really have that fear. Yeah. 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 You just yeah. I just I've been through that business a long time doing true crime and know a lot of cops and i just know that sometimes you can kind of really put yourself in a bad place amongst them 
Yeah, and if and what and what the book is kind of about is about the, the you know their insidious reach, which included I think reaching into every institution in Long Island. The, you know the poli- the uh, the politics, controlling politicians, even to some extent reaching uh, having having influence over the uh, the you know the sort of monopolizing newspaper of the area, which is which is Newsday, which is where I previously worked, and so. I think, you know, reporters who have gone up, who went up against these same characters um, while working at Newsday uh, sort of had a, had a really hard go about at it, you know, and, and I, one, one of the main characters in the book, her name's Tanya Lopez. She was a Newsday reporter who, who sort of described like this paranoiac experience of trying to investigate these guys and, 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 and breaking news on them really pivotal stories and they were not happy about it. And so finding, you know, nails in her tires and not knowing if that was paranoia or that was them. And then, you know, also hearing rumors that, that sort of made clear to her that, that stuff from her HR file at Newsday was, was getting out into the world. Um, And I even came across, um, a document in the DA's office out there, which showed that uh, the DA, who at that time was actively conspiring with the police chief um, against her, including uh, listening to her wiretap phone calls, was also uh, getting updates from an editor at Newsday about what she was doing. So uh, it's a tough beast to investigate from the inside. So I think it worked somewhat to my benefit that uh, I was you know, an outsider investigating it at that point. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Long Island. So this one hits pretty hard to home. Um, and I remember reading about it when it, when it first broke um, and when I was visiting my family um, and this one just always kind of stuck out in my mind. And when I was rereading about it, once I saw the guy's picture, I knew instantly who, who we were talking about, you know, in, in this case, the case of uh, Jimmy Burke, the former police chief of uh, Suffolk County, I mean, is this a case of like absolute power corrupts absolutely or or is this really uh, something else? Um, the way that I so so, you know, I think the official line, if you were to if you were to um, what's the arm of somebody in Suffolk County PD to, to tell you what they thought about Jimmy Burke, you know, in the top ranks, they would say, well, that was, you know, he was the baddest of all the apples and and we've cleansed ourselves of him now. And and they. Jimmy Burke is sort of like presented as like the the boogeyman of Suffolk County and that he's, you know, the 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 bad guy who is responsible for everything that that all the failures out there. But I think in reality and I think what I try to take pains to show in the book is he he actually was just somebody who learned the ropes that already existed out there. He was um he was a a teenage he was a murder witness uh, back when he was um 15 of this notorious murder in Smithtown, New York, of a 13-year-old boy named John Pius, who was found in the woods with six stones stuffed down his throat. And young Jimmy Burke, who was kind of like a wayward teenager at that point, emerged and he had this story to tell. And um, the prosecutor took him under his wing. And basically for the next more than a decade, Burke was uh, in various trials and retrials in this case, testifying against his former buddies 
and his story kept shifting like exactly how the prosecutor needed it um and in ways that contradicted himself and in reward the the da's office um gave him a, a career in policing it sort of directly rewarded him there's there's documents that that i came across that make that really clear that that essentially his you know body background as a teenager was forgiven in response for his testimony in the pious case and then from that point he sort of um mastered the political element of policing in long island uh which was um you know partly manipulation of politicians uh partly uh, bsing you know a lot just lots of sort of jargon that like political you know, political characters could seize on um and 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 sort of remaking himself you know whenever needed and so he learned like this whole political system to to the point where he and the the prosec the prosecutor in the pious case who became the DA and was sort of his protector for decades um they became the most powerful people in an extremely large county out there in Suffolk County and and were you know formidable and and uh they really couldn't be tested until an unforeseen incident occurred which involved a uh, duffel bag full of sex toys oh that was my <laughs> um, you changed history out. No, diff, different sex toy bag. Different. Oh, oh. Uh, more than one person can have one. Oh. AQ. <laughs> um, well, how did you come across this case? Like, what, what brought you into it? Just because it was in your neighborhood and something you always wanted to cover? Or where, where did it all come from for you? Um, so I was at Newsday. I was on the investigative team. And I, I covered Tom Spoda, who was the, pros the aforementioned prosecutor. Uh, a lot and um i didn't i didn't cover jimmy burke very much because yeah i was not i uh i was not on that on that beat um but i, I you know while i was there this conspiracy unraveled um sort of very slowly over years and 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 pretty publicly in which um jimmy burke uh was was ultimately brought down by the feds for having beaten up a, a heroin addict who stole a duffel bag from his police truck that contained the the uh, aforementioned sex toys, and um, there was a long sort of cover up. And so as I as I sort of watched that unravel, I thought that was pretty interesting because I mean this is the um, one of the largest police jurisdictions in the country and the highest paid. You know the cops. Uh, routinely make 200 grand or more um, and they have extreme power over the political jurisdiction um, and over the people uh, that live in Long Island and, and particularly Suffolk County and so I thought that was pretty fascinating that you know that that the chief uh, was, was brought down over that and then what really sort of like brought it home that that there's probably a book here was was learning about his involvement in the pious case and and the fact that um the the da had at the time been a prosecutor and and had sort of taken him under under his wing as a 15 year old and led him into policing to me it kind of had like a like a the departed vibe and then the more that i you know looked into it even just looking into that that pious case and in the in the in 1979 and just 
you know, getting my hands on transcripts and, and reading through how troubled that case was and, and how it was sort of an example of how cops and prosecutors out there sort of cooked the books and, and concocted cases that very well may have resulted in wrongful convictions over and over again. I just felt that, um, that Jimmy Burke was, was just such a great example of like this, this troubled, um, jurisdiction and kind of like what it represented as far as how cops and prosecutors can operate. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, you know, particularly when the top cop in, in any state in, in any region gets, um, essentially gets, um, you know, fired and I kind of want to take it from, I want to reach back to, to the top where he essentially, he made his break was, was being an informant, um, or maybe a witness, I guess you'll, you tell us a little bit in, yeah. in a moment, uh, from that, that case where, uh, where a 13 year old was killed. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the fallout when, when that type of stuff happens with, and the prosecutor who was behind him and helped him rise through the ranks in police, in law enforcement, um, was then later actually disbarred as well. So, I mean, what happened with that case? I mean, is, was it reopened? Is the killer, is the real killer? still out there i mean let's start there sure um and so so you know to give a little background on it the basically the body of john pius was found behind a schoolyard in smithtown new york in in april 1979 and this was a point when essentially there was a major exodus from the city to the suburbs so it was an it was a big deal because uh you know it kind of it it it, it it countered the myth that the suburbs were free of, of horrific crimes that were occurring in the city. And, um, uh, and, and the prosecutor who was on the case was, his name was Tom Spoda. He had gotten his, he had cut his teeth about five years earlier on another case that also countered the myth. That myth has to be countered a lot, I guess, uh, which was the Amityville slang, which was, you know, probably one of the most notorious uh, crimes in American history in which um, a young man murdered six uh, members of his family. So uh, Spoda had sort of uh, risen up the ranks following some notoriety for being for being second chair in that prosecution. And, you know, I think he recognized in Jimmy Burke a um, a kid from Smithtown who was smart and sort of eager to please and eager to find some, you know, way to better his own life. Um, and, and, and so uh, Burke was one of, one of several teenage witnesses who testified that a, um, that, that uh, some of the, the four defendants who were all friends of Burke had uh pseudo confessed uh to the to being involved in the murder and the case really just relied on 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 uh their testimony there was no physical evidence tying them to the to the murder the only other piece of evidence was a confession which was later ruled to be coerced from a 15 year old boy one of the defendants who was separated from uh his parents his parents weren't told where he was that when detectives took him and he was interviewed in the back of a, in the back of a detective squad car. And he was also not given access to, um, 
to his uh, to his lawyers. And so what he claimed was that the detectives basically told him what to say. And then they tape recorded him as he said it. So the case sort of, you know, there initially there was four convictions. Uh, all four convictions were then overturned. But the, you know, this was a case that I think was ex- like Suffolk County does not give up its even dubious homicide convictions easily. And so they fought to, to reinstate convictions at, you know, with two of the defendants, they agreed to deals, which the defendant said they could not turn down, which essentially promised to let them out of prison with no further prison time in, in return for pleading to lesser charges. One of the defendants was never retried and another one was reconvicted and, and ended up eventually being paroled. But, you know, as I was going through the case, there's so many conflicts and there's so many inconsistencies throughout the case. You know, the, 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 um, boys who were convicted, they were all convicted on sort of different tellings of the strikingly different tellings of what happened in the case as, as if, Suffolk County was sort of accepting uh, any story in which they would, in which, you know, the individual defendant would, would either be found guilty by a jury or agree to plead guilty, even though the, the um, circumstances didn't line up with each other. Uh, and, you know, the, the sort of star witness who first testified in the early 80s, later testified when he was a cop in 1990, was was Jimmy Burke and his testimony like at, at times he would take uh he would say you know at times he would say one defendant said a a, a uh, incriminating statement and then in a different trial he would say that a different defendant said the exact same incriminating statement in the exact same place so it's very odd stuff like that which which you know kind of seemed tailored to exactly what the the uh what the prosecutors needed and and you know there's some really telling inconsistencies one of them was burke and other uh similar witnesses all sort of talked about how how uh when one of the boys uh confessed to them that he that he included in his pseudo confession that he put the victim's bike up against a tree uh, and it was, it was one of those like sort of telling details where if you get, you know, not even that deep into the case, you can see that, in fact, the bike uh, of the victim was found on the ground. And when the victim's father arrived at the scene, he put the bike up against the tree. But the detectives who interviewed those kids didn't know that they had shown up and the bike was against the tree. So it's one of these things where detectives probably seized on that because it, you know, it's a detail that only the killer would supposedly know, but it, works uh counter really because it's uh if it's not something that happened why are these kids saying like it did and it sort of suggests that they were that they were fed that tidbit uh in order to incorporate it into their testimony um so there's there's basically a you know a flawed history of the case that goes on for 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 decades until the early 2000s um and and because none of them are in prison, I don't think that there's been a huge push to sort of re-examine the case because there's nobody that you're getting out of prison, right? Um, but, you know, they've spent 50, 
uh, roughly 50 years in prison total for this murder. Uh, and there's no, uh, there's no physical evidence that they were involved in the, and the uh, testimony evidence is inconsistent and contradicted. Um, so, you know, to me, it's something that it's a case that cries out for, for, uh, for reexamination. And, you know, to your point, which I think is often overlooked and, Impossible wrongful convictions. Uh, if they didn't do it, whoever killed John Pius, you know, could still be out there and has never been punished for it. And I think that's a really important point. Yeah, it's pretty sickening. Uh, I mean, really different aspects of Jimmy Burke and his career. I mean, it, it is quite sickening. I mean, and that's really how it began. That's kind of how he, and that's how he got his big break. I want to kind of skip ahead to the end and how he pretty much was caught in between a lot of crimes clearly committed and an abuse of power as well. Uh, but he was brought down by, uh, Alan, calm down, by, by a bag of sex toys, as you mentioned. Um, tell us a little bit about that because, you know, when I was reading about him, apparently he was, his career was almost, was almost done before it even really began because he was caught having a relationship with a prostitute as a police officer. So to me, when I see he was fairly brazen as a young man and continued out throughout his career. And then he, you know, he has a bag of sex toys stolen. I mean, to me, comparatively to dating a prostitute as a police officer, it's probably kind of not that much of a difference or you probably wouldn't be scared. I mean, so do you think that there's something a little bit more beyond the stolen bag of sex toys, which then eventually led to his downfall? Um, Yeah. So, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, essentially what happened there was was a, there was a, um, a heroin addict who was based, based in Smithtown and everything in this book kind of happens which I sort of enjoyed with, within a few miles of, of itself in, in, in Smithtown. You know, almost everything in this book happens within a few miles. And I just thought that was interesting. And, and so one of the, so this heroin addict named Christopher Loeb kind of habitually broke into cars and would, would steal whatever was in the car, essentially. Uh, and, and, but he would just jiggle doors. He never actually broke in. You know, he would not like smash a window, for example. So he was sort of like the lowest on the cast of uh, of of criminal actors, um, and this is the guy who who kind of you know changed the the uh, the the history of Suffolk County. So uh, he stole a duffel bag from Jimmy Burke's Yukon GMC one night, uh, and by the next morning, uh, unfortunately for Loeb, he had a probation unannounced probation visit. Uh, and so at that point, it was discovered that he had stolen the chief's stuff. And the, the, the chief, uh, Jimmy Burke, then goes to the precinct where Burke's being held. I mean, I'm sorry, where Loeb's being held. Um, and he has three of his top detectives who were who he referred to as his palace guards because they kind of handled everything for him. Uh, had already slapped Chris Loeb around trying to get him to confess Jimmy Burke, uh, unsatisfied that he did not confess, mostly because Loeb was basically strung out and like falling asleep during the beating. Uh, Burke then goes in and and he beats Loeb pretty viciously, uh, from my understanding, himself. Um, and in an attempt to get Loeb to confess, and also I think just in an attempt to sort of show his dominance. Um, so. You're right. You know, he had before that point, he had survived every scandal. You know, he had he he had a long standing relationship with a sex worker uh, in his precinct as a younger cop. And um, he, you know, he was basically given a slap on the wrist by IAB, Internal Affairs Bureau, essentially because he was protected by Tom Spoda, the, the mentor and prosecutor. And then later, and, and that was kept secret by New York's, you know, laws, which, which uh, at the time kept secret everything that uh, all internal affairs records. And then when that emerged publicly due to um, the digging of, of uh, the Newsday reporter, Tony Lopez, you know, I think there was, I think in Europe, that was shortly after he had been confirmed as police chief. And I think in your average jurisdiction, that would have been the end of him, right? I mean, it's such a major scandal that I think that that uh, typically um, the county executive or the commissioner would have said, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Burke is stepping down and we're finding a new police chief. But in this case, he and Spoda had by then just a complete death grip over the politicians and the voting bloc and the police unions. 
of of Suffolk County that that he was able to stay in power. Uh, he was able to remain police chief. And so, you know, you're right. Essentially, the the beating of Chris Loeb was less than a year after he had become police chief. And, you know, I guess sort of in your question is, was he was he motivated to beat Chris Loeb? And was he angry because there was, you know, perhaps something more in the duffel bag, perhaps a scandal, which was bigger than any he had faced before? Um, you know, the what Chris Loeb uh, told the FBI was that there was child porn in his bag. And that's something that's, you know, an ac- accusation that's, that's sort of percolated for years. I frankly don't think there's any evidence that there's child porn in his bag. I think that pro- that what there was, was, was adult porn, uh, which is, which, you know, police officers sort of helpfully placed on, um, they they when they went through the bag in Chris Loeb's house, you know they put it on on Chris Loeb's dresser, you know, sort of helpfully giving it to Chris Loeb so that it wouldn't be embarrassing for Chief Burke. Um, so I don't, you know, that that's one of the wilder things about this because because uh, what you see is this this kind of this um, all consuming cover up by you know, lowly beat cops, uh, precinct detectives, top detectives, uh, top corruption prosecutor, DA, like all up the ranks, this, this all-consuming cover-up that I think begins with just covering up the fact that the chief had a duffel bag that had sex toys, porn, Viagra, and sexual lubricant in it, which, you know, I, is a scandal that, that he would have survived. Uh, and then later the cover-up becomes, you know, the covering up the fact that Burke beat up Loeb. But in my mind, um, that's one of the things I found interesting about it. It just showed how quickly sort of there's like this unspoken instinct by by some police to just, you know, disregard protocols. For example, they allowed Burke to just come into the crime scene and take his duffel bag and then go to the precinct and meet with the defendant and and while he was meeting with him he pummeled him um you know to disregard protocols and and lie to federal agents lie under oath um initially just to cover up you know the small embarrassing detail that that uh perhaps the chief had a kinky sex life uh and and to me i i found that pretty interesting that that's kind of where this all spiraled from yeah, I mean, to me, this seems fairly tame in comparison, particularly when you were dating a prostitute decades before. Um, so, like you mentioned, that this case is so wild, and one of the there's some wild accusations now being thrown toward Burke. Or, and I kind of want to see the veracity of how wild they are. Sure. The, the the thief Loeb, he also not only said that there was probably some some type of you know, I guess maybe child porn or something of that nature supposedly he also said that there was a snuff film inside that bag that supposedly has links to the uh, long island serial killer i mean he's a thief and a heroin addict so he himself is not that reliable but also if you also look at accumulatively some of the other evidence that has come out since there you know soon after uh, he became chief blork uh, excuse me, Burke supposedly blocked an FBI's investigation into the Gilgo Beach serial killings, according to a federal source. Yeah. Also, in that same year, he was uh, the same year that he was convicted. 
An escort also claimed that Burke partied with uh, her at an unknown Oak Beach home um, and engaged in some rough sex. And Oak Beach is right where, you know, right near where Shannon Gilbert's body was, which was kind of kicked off finding all the other bodies in the Long Island serial killer or serial killers. Do you I mean, based on all of those three things put together, do you think Burke has some legitimate links to whoever could be or maybe he is the Long Island serial killer? Yeah, well, I guess to start with, you know, addressing the duffel bag questions, because, well, for, for one, just, you know, I, I think it's worth noting that that Loeb sort of his description of the child porn that he that he saw said he saw, as did his co-defendant, Gabe Miguelas, who also was breaking into cars with him, was a, you know, an adolescent. There was an adolescent on the cover. Uh, and as the FBI agents noted sort of dryly uh, in some records that I saw, you know, typically child pornographers do not sort of make pseudo commercial versions of their covers. Uh, and, and it's usually a little bit more discreet than that. Um, and, you know, as far as Loeb saying that he did not that he found a snuff film um and watched it you know uh he didn't he didn't tell the fbi that and he didn't put that in court testimony that's something that emerged later uh and so i think you know i i think i you have to take it you have to take what he says to some extent with a grain of salt but you know at the same time he's also somebody who was not believed initially and and when he went to court you know the judge and the cops testified against him that were that that were witnesses testified against him called his his uh testimony false a judge agreed with it with the cops you know this is somebody who has not been believed before and hey the substance of of what he said previously you know turned out to be true although you know i think that there's there's a there's a certain point where i'm willing to take that and, and where i where to me i grow pretty skeptical um, and then, you know, the idea that has really sort of gained momentum over past several years that, that Burke was involved in the um, in the Gilgo killings, you know, I think, as you said, that that has a there's a strong foundation to suspect that he is that he was orchestrating some sort of a cover up. And and, you know, you mentioned that he took the FBI uh, he did not allow the FBI to profile the suspect, him and Tom Spoda. I actually think it was mainly Tom Spoda, but I think they worked in tandem. Um, and, and you know, he was sort of known for these dalliances with with sex workers. He did have a history in that area. Uh, you know, the the sex worker who who said who gave an affidavit about him accosting her and hiring her and then accosting her. You know, her account was. I don't think that there was cooperation that 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 occurred, um, but you know that doesn't mean that it didn't. Um, so you know, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of smoke there for sure, and I think that's why people have seized on. But I also think that that uh, you know what I haven't seen is really any sort of hard evidence that that that, that you know would be required to even think of a guy as a suspect, and and in fact. You know, I find it somewhat unlikely that that Burke was was somehow involved, and then the feds, who you know, really turned his life inside out and talked to his girlfriends and his 
childhood friends and anybody who knew him and made a lot of them cooperators uh, and studied his duty charts and studied all of his records um, and really made him their project uh, that, you know, uh, for, for years, I, I find it sort of surprising I, that they wouldn't, uh, that they wouldn't sort of find evidence that he was involved in systemic killings of sex workers for years. But you know, that that said, it's not smart money to bet against a conspiracy in Suffolk County, uh, clearly, like, you know, as this book shows, because I think from the beginning, some of this, some of the stuff in the book seems outlandish and people didn't believe it at first. And then it turned out to be true. But um, uh, and, and I, you know, there's obviously a, a strong strand of sort of self-protectionism out there as far as police prosecutors other sort of political uh, elite of the county and so you know perhaps it's possible that that there was some sort of a a, uh, a cover-up of activities that were going on on oak beach uh whether it be direct involvement in the killings or something else embarrassing uh that that um that burke and spotted didn't want uncovered but you know i think um something that's perhaps not as exciting but also pretty real is that as far as why they would have blocked the feds is i i think that these guys really just saw law enforcement um as a sort of pursuit of you know glory and 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 i don't think that they were very involved and in, i don't think that they really put much stock in in sort of uh solving crimes for uh just because that's their job uh and so i think that that you know they may have been averse to the feds sort of swooping in and using their like highfalutin uh, uh, uh character profiles to help solve this case and 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 cell phone data and all these other things that sophisticated uh, departments and federal agencies use routinely. Um, and I think that, you know, their worst nightmare for a guy like Jimmy Burke, his worst nightmare would have been the feds kind of coming into his turf and, and uh, solving, you know, the highest profile case on his turf. So I think he, you know, he might've blocked them because, because he'd rather not be solved at all than have the feds solve it. Well, regardless, what we do know is that he did get for almost four years for the crimes that he did commit. Um, but that was back in 2016, 2017. So he's actually probably out on the street right now. Um, one, do you think like 40, almost four years is too little or too much? And two, since he's probably out on the streets right now, I mean, what, what is he doing? If you know, sure. Um, the, you know, it, it's interesting the four years he, you know, he was, he actually paid much less of a penance for his crime than, then Tom Spoda uh, and Spoda's top aide, Christopher McPartland, were who were convicted of helping him cover up the beating of Loeb did um, because both of them spent years fighting it. And then they actually received longer sentences than Burke. Um, and, the, you know, the book is sort of written with the theme of these particular cops and prosecutors as an organized crime cabal. And I think at, by the end of the book, that's when, when he's sort of when Jimmy Burke is facing time behind bars, that really becomes clear. He literally says stuff like through his lawyer 
tells his lawyer to pass on to Tom Spoda and Chris McPartland that he's a stand-up guy. He's going to do his time and not and not and not talk to anybody. Essentially, that he's not going to snitch, which is sort of amazing coming from law enforcement people that you know um, are 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 uh, traditionally supposed to encourage snitching, but they're so far gone from that, right? And and so the uh, um, I think that that sort of the way that he handled his case, which was kind of like a savvy mobster. Uh, and he literally had John Gotti's attorney, uh, John Gotti Jr.'s attorney is his, um, was smart, you know, for him because, because essentially what he did was he did his time, uh, and he got out from what I, from what I could gather, he's still around Smithtown, uh, and helping him along was the fact that pensions in New York state, um, for police are essentially never revoked, even if you're convicted of a federal top level conspiracy that took up, you know, years of time that you were uh, allegedly working. Um, so, you know, he still receives $145,000 or so from Suffolk taxpayers every year. And, you know, I think as far as a, um, as a convicted felon goes, he's got probably a pretty cushy life. Wow. So um, at the end of the day here, when you when you um, wrote this book and when someone takes it home and reads it, what is it you you're hoping that they take away from it? Um, you know, what I saw Burke as a as an author, what I saw his utility as was was in exploring um, how police who uh, particularly unqualified ones can can really um navigate like the levers of power uh and and um how you know all the laws kind of um work in their favor or the laws keep their misconduct secret it keeps cases that um that are overturned because of because of uh because of their false testimony secret um the uh you know and, and the way that politicians are sort of beholden to them um i you know and and sort of key to that is, is the power of the police unions which are you know really i think come to life in jimmy burke's story there are his fishing buddies the the, the police union executives and uh even though he was a chief you know, and and so really, he was the man that the that the police unions were supposed to be sort of battling. Uh, they they defended him over defending their rank and file, which were defend were which were detectives and others who he had sort of who he sought to 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 um to destroy. And so I just found it really interesting, kind of that you know, there's been so many questions. I think particularly in the wake of George Floyd's death as to how do police get this, amass this, you know, huge amount of unchecked power that gives them the impunity to, for example, put their knee on a guy's neck while other people are filming. And they think that they're not going to even lose their job, you know, or, or much less be convicted for murder. And I think the Jimmy Burke story kind of uh goes is is a like kind of dynamic real life example of of how that power is amassed and you know same thing when jimmy burke beat up 
Chris Loeb, you know, as we discussed, there wasn't much on this, there wasn't much at stake. He could have just easily just knock on into the precinct and let his car theft be handled, you know, properly. But I think he just never thought, and I think he had a good reason to never think that he would ever be held to account for for that or for the ensuing cover-up or for any of the misconduct in his career because of all the insulating layers that he had built up over his career. Well, so did, did you come across any surprises, anything that you were totally unaware of? Lots of, I mean, lots of surprises. The, you know, the whole thing was sort of like an exercise in, in, uh, in, in wow. Because the, the whole process really kind of, uh, you know, drove home um, uh, the spectacular power that these guys have and, and sort of how brazen it is. I mean, I think I was, I was somewhat surprised by by the police union involvement and how sort of immediately they came to the the defense of 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 Burke in a in a way that was um that was that did not strike me as legal uh even though they have not been federally indicted uh which was for example you know th- there was a copious amount of witnesses of of Burke uh, first going to Loeb's house and then going to the precinct and and beating him, and any of those police witnesses uh, really could have started the process of burying Burke. And so he was in this he was in this proposition where he had a lot of witnesses um, who could have done him in. Um, but so what the police union bosses would do is they would essentially hold like like live auditions where they would have the police come into their offices uh, and they would say, and, you know, in a group, and they would say, what did you see that day? And and people, you know, would, in like the form of like a creative writing workshop or something, each of the cops would say what they saw. And then the police union officials would sort of, would sort of quietly, they, they would, they would, quite clearly uh but subtly say what they wanted the story to be so for example they might say you know i heard the same thing but i heard that jimmy burke didn't go into the interrogation room that day i heard he just opened the door and poked his head in and then the cop sort of understands if i say that jimmy burke went into the interrogation uh room that day i'm gonna be jettisoned to some far off precincts counting case numbers for the rest of my career. I'm never going to make detective. And so you see with all of the various cops, detectives, um, you know, that they were, that they were uh, um, sort of shaping their story that way. Uh, And, and it worked, you know, initially the FBI were sort of defeated by, by, um, by how the cops wouldn't break ranks. And, I found I found that surprising just how brazen, you know, really sanctioned perjury is in a major police department. Um, And one other thing that I also found pretty surprising was that, uh, you know, you often hear this thing about how how police are are bad or, you know, the, 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 the bad actors of a department are a bad apple. Right. And it's not it's not the bushel. It's just that that, you know, those are the guys that get the publicity. But most cops are are sort of good and and you often hear that after there's like a police scandal involving um somebody like the cop in the George Floyd case 
Um, and what I sort of learned into this case was, I mean, into this story was I was able to speak to a lot of the co-conspirators in this case, uh, including a couple of the detectives who helped beat uh, uh, Chris Loeb and then helped cover it up. And it was interesting talking to them and sort of realizing that at the beginning, they were kind of idealistic young cops, uh, you know, and um, one of them had a really sort of kind of haunting childhood where um, his dad, who was a, uh, a like a two bit wise guy, had be- beaten his mother almost to death. And when the cops came to his house, the NYPD cops, you know, he sort of described hearing their radios crackle and watching them sort of comfort uh his siblings and himself and realizing i want to be an nypd cop just like them uh but then as he joined the force sort of you know that's that's kind of slowly um pummeled out of a cop uh and and i think it's because the examples above them are often very poor and and the department's sort of don't utilize their skills but instead in the case of this cop and others who are involved in the conspiracy kind of turned them into like henchmen, right? And these guys became like the goons for, for Jimmy Burke. Um, and I found that pretty surprising because I, 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 you know, um, what I saw was there was those, those, those police officers who were sort of perverted, you know, against, uh, by, by the system in which they enlisted. And then there was others who did make an effort to, to kind of correct the system and and like did try to tell people like the county executive of Suffolk County, um, hey, this Jimmy Burke guy is trouble. And instead they were just sort of ground under the wheels, right? And so it kind of showed this is what happens when you don't go along with that system is, for example, you might get your phone wiretapped and and you're convicted of a crime for leaking, leaking documents to the media. Um, so I thought, you know, I did not... I did not sort of expect to go into this with getting like a portrait that would sort of humanize some of the police involved, partly because I didn't know or I wasn't confident that I would get, you know, those guys to talk to me. But but a lot of them did. They wanted to tell the story. And so I found it really sort of surprising and enlightening to see how that happens in reality, how, you know, that these are not the police, bad cops are not monsters. They're not created like overnight, but it, it's a inoculating process. Um, and I found that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Um, so, so how do people get a hold of you now? Now these cops want to come find you. So yeah, address, phone number, <laughs> website, whatever. Uh so uh, I'm on Twitter at G Garcia Roberts, and um, uh, so you can you can I'm, my DMs are open, so you can reach me there. And uh, and I'm doing three or four readings in Long Island, and I have them listed on my Twitter. I'm doing them uh, starting um, on the 11th, I believe, at a Barnes and Noble. Start uh, June 11th, um, and so I'm doing a couple of Barnes and Nobles and another bookstore in, in Sag Harbor. Uh, all out in Long Island, and I'm hoping that the audience uh, is full of cops. Um, and <laughs> and uh, you know, and and, and I, I really am because I, I know that cops have have sort of some cops out there have devoured this book, 
Uh, and some like it, you know, I think for some of the reasons I just said with my last answer and, and some uh, don't like it. And, and hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll be the liveliest reading at, at the um, Lake Grove Barnes and Noble in history. Yeah. Well, it's always good to have a cop in a uniform, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, it's been interesting. So everyone, you got to pick up the new book by Gus Garcia Roberts, Jimmy the King. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. This is fun. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.